When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to Design Huddle. We have Mustafa back in studio. And by in studio, I mean our makeshift work from home offices. <laughs> How are you feeling? Uh, yeah, no, oh my God, I was so sick. It wasn't COVID, but it was COVID-esque. Um, and you do that with children. And during a vacation that you've been waiting for ages, yeah, it was, it's, it's a total cluster. Beep. <laughs> but, you know, I see you've been busy interviewing the world. Yeah, yeah, no, trying to trying to keep uh, you know the the podcast crawling up the the rankings. Did you see that yeah. I posted some of the spots that were popular? I said we should move the studio to some of those other countries that appreciate Design Huddle. We were yeah, like the number well, I mean, five and number six podcast in other countries. So, well, you we say that. Get I mean, away from the UK and US audience. Yeah, I mean, you say that. I mean, I think we've spoken about this ages when we first started doing this together. Um, which may be the theme of this podcast, of this episode. Um, there was a dating site in New York that was pitched at um, the Hasidic Jewish community. And they like, and so it had all like the um, chaperoning and it was like designed for that community. Uh, but they yeah. didn't, it didn't really take off. But then they started seeing a huge um, following in India because they follow, in India it's very conservative as well and they follow very similar traditions. And so... They rebranded the site and they moved the offices to India and it became a really successful, successful dating site. <laughs> so so yeah. who knows, maybe this time next year we could be in like Bangladesh or something. I don't know. Yeah, there was a there's a phenomenal TED talk that basically went through like all of the, you know, the unicorn startups that basically like rose to fame. Think like Uber, Airbnb, etc. And it kind of went into the dynamics of what makes them like successful. And like the number one, most important one was like a team. So like being a team that has like the flexibility to kind of pivot. Um, and the other one was uh, one of the other top five elements was just like straight up timing. Was it just like, is this the right time for the yeah. company or product or service you're building right now? Cause if the time it, it could be the best idea in the world, but if the market's not ready for it or you're late, like it's a missed opportunity, but um, yeah, it's that's true. funny. We'll have to figure out the name of that company and can see how they're doing now. But I'm, I'm not surprised that it works. I, it they probably tech in place, right? You know. Yeah, it'll take me ten minutes to probably search one. But yeah, that whole podcast you just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tapping on the keyboard. Um, but yeah, now, now another example. I remember one of my uncles was telling me his friend tried to set up a a, a travel agency, but all online like about five years before it happened, and he spent so much money to get a custom-built thing. And at that point, I think it was, must have been late 90s, people just were too reluctant to use their credit cards with a computer. There was still that fear of, I don't know what, what's going to happen and lack of trust. Um, and it obviously failed. Question. What, do you, what do you think changed? Because I, I think about that a lot, right? We went, is it, we went from like people being terrified to putting their credit cards into the internet, and now it's like, people throw it around like no problem. Do you think it's just like the customer? Sometimes I think it's like the comfort of like the customer service of certain like American Express. Like if I have a fraudulent charge, like they reimburse me, they dispute it. And like, they're like, 
they're really good at kind of like making sure that everything is resolved. But for me, it's always been like generational where it was like, I never had a problem with it, but yeah. I remember my parents for a long time like refused to like I think put there their was, credit card in online. From my understanding, there was always well, in the UK anyway. There was always laws that protected the customer from some kind of, especially with credit cards. Debit cards is a bit more problematic because that's basically you're using your own cash, but um, credit right. cards is someone else's. But I think when credit card companies started ramping up advertising saying that your money is protected, then people felt a bit more comfortable. And I think in the early 2000s in the UK in particular, like that was a big part of like, you're protected by, you'd always see that word um, around. And I think it's a generational thing as well, probably is people, um, like credit cards in the 80s was a sign of, as a status symbol, I remember. It's like, you know, what was like Dallas, and all those big, the American TV shows. So I think once the early 2000s where credit cards were much more abundant, especially amongst younger people, probably that fear. Um, and also they grew to, it, up with the technology. So that was like the way you buy things rather than some archaic going to a store, making this thing come to you. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, but then even with payments, that flow is very unique to certain countries. You know, I think we've spoken about this before, but like yeah. in Brazil and Turkey where you, you buy, you pay the career, like the person who brings delivers the stuff to you rather than on online. And there's other things where you pay and then you get the thing to deliver to your house. Like supermarkets do this, like, you know, which is a quite weird thing. You go to a supermarket, you pay, and then you get it to come to, to deliver to you rather than you just taking a grocery shopping home. Cause it's like you're carrying your work bag or something. Cause you're being lazy or it's just too heavy. So, and so there's so many different payment flows or SMS. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I, I find that payment, uh, evolution especially the cultural thing very interesting yeah well this is a perfect bridge to our topic today which is the cultural differences um and like specifically like how different countries think about design and you stumbled upon this tweet which i'll i'll share share screens which is pretty interesting but why don't you give a read of it and then i'll uh, share my screen in the background so this is, a, uh, I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to speak to get her on uh, the podcast. I think her name is, it's Mika, but her Twitter handle is Paprika. Um, and she was giving like a a comparison between um, essentially Japanese design and, uh, uh, or a Japanese YouTuber who was presenting their YouTube channel in English and in Japanese. And the, the English version, like the thumbnails and the way it's presented, is kind of the stereotype that we have in the West of Japanese design, this serene, you know, peaceful, simplistic, yeah. minimalist design. You know, it's it's very presentable, like, which, I, which I've always thought, oh, that's Japanese design. But then when she compared it with the Japanese version, like the translation, um, it's much more visually vibrant, almost chaotic there's a lot more smiling going on when the japanese it seems to be very solemn or sort of like professional looking so it just made me think like is there a thing with japanese design where they have um an international persona of how they want to project themselves and then they have a persona for their actual local audiences and for that 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 was kind of like so it's not just about translation it's it's much more detailed than that it's like there's a whole thing of how a culture wants themselves to be perceived internationally which i found Really interesting. Um, this is what Marie Kondos is a YouTube channel, yeah, YouTube channel about organization, I guess. Um, I'm not really familiar with her, but she's quite obviously well known. Um, 
But I found that weird of like, you know, and then that you, the Twitter thread goes on and you see um, folks pointing out the differences between, say, Japanese design um, and, say, European or West American design. So you've got the gas station example that was posted on Twitter, uh, where, you, you know, the petrol station, gas station, there's just the pump, maybe a payment mechanism there. But then the Japanese one is like a hundred different options going on at the same time. Like that was curious. Why, why so many options for the Japanese one? Like, it seems like a bad experience because like, there's so much going on. And like, if you're a gas station, you just want people to like swipe their card, get the gas, have a, you know, then put it back on and leave. So there's color coatings. Like I'd love to know why they're, one of the gas handles is green, one's red, one's yellow. And then in terms of I what mean, we're looking at, there's literally text everywhere on the entire gas well, station. Like The thing is, with these kind of UI or these kind of experiences, they've been designed with Western characters in mind. And so maybe the Japanese written language is so pictorial that this flow doesn't really pander to like the way the language works. And also, I mean... <sighs> again this is another stereotype we have that japan is like one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world but maybe the payment mechanisms there they have different ones maybe the banking system isn't as fluid as it is like you know you can go to an AT any almost any atm regardless of the bank and you could use it like in the uk and the us but maybe that's not the case there so there's all these other sort of hoops you have to jump through um and there may be some sort of legacy technology that this stuff is built up on. If you just, this is why having like um, it'll be I think her name's Mika, like having her on a podcast to kind of explain maybe the history of this, and it kind of plays to uh, another stereotype. I remember way back when one of the material designers were telling me that when they were trying to pitch material design to Asia, they they found that um, the Japanese version of the of material was very simplistic minimalist as as the stereotype would be but in china they preferred a more chaotic ui i'm wondering now that when they, if they when they're doing the research if the participants were just basically giving this international persona to this foreign person who's come to japan say no no this is what japanese design is but without actually being honest saying no no it's much more chaotic so it's like you know that thing of if you ask people directly they won't necessarily tell you the truth they'll tell you what they think you want to know um, yeah. So, I mean, and then seeing these like multiple examples of the difference between Japanese uh, design and uh, like day to day stuff, I thought, okay, so it's not as simple as, you know, we think simplistic design, like, but with beautiful complexity, like origami or um, the manga or like the, the architecture, like all these kind of stereotypes. It feels like we've either been sold <laughs> as like a branding exercise from Japan, which is not necessarily accurate representation of day-to-day -day life, um, which I thought was really fascinating. Like, I mean, you look at the difference between the coffee machines. I mean, what, what is going on? Like, you have to go to the YouTube channel to see this, but it's basically like a normal coffee machine with a thousand labels printed everywhere. Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. One is just like the, the visual nature of Japanese text it just i don't think it fits these models it could be like just a lot of additional detail where they're trying to convert a western machine to make it to fit um with you know um you know japanese people coming in and out of the of the coffee shop the one thing that i found interesting is that this is like at a larger level the first time i went to japan 
like specifically Tokyo, I found it to be like this like total contrast in like a good way where you walk through like this amazing calm garden temple like that's you know so serene and it's you know you can hear it's very organized it's well manicured and then a couple blocks down you're like in the thick of a city that has signs everywhere neon lights people energy there's just like so it reminds me of like looking at this coffee machine it reminds me of like walking um through like shibuya i think that's how you say it like one of the more like i guess business touristy districts and uh this is like exactly what it was just like a bunch of stuff like thrown at you all at once so i would love to get uh, mika on to kind of like help us sort through this my other reaction is is i don't i think that it's the age-old thing with design where it's like too much if you have if you give a user or a reader too much information like nothing is actually processed so I'm curious if, you know, if somebody walked into the store and they saw, you know, all of this text on this machine, do they still even get the coffee machine? Because coffee is inherently fairly simple. So, um, so a few things there. One is, have you been to, have you been to Japan? And do you get, do you feel like that metaphor that I mentioned is accurate? And two is like, don't you think that this is almost bad design or do you think it's just part of the culture and it's completely accepted yeah i mean well to the second point it's it's just it would be difficult to do without actually having someone explain um some of the historical historical context to say like their design it'll be hard to redetermine uh one thing which um i remember there was a ted talk where it was a guy from china and he was talking about the differences between language he was trying to basically show that um different languages will uh, have different effects on people's uh, view to money and economics like languages which have a lot of future tense type um grammar are less likely to do things in the immediate term and therefore they're economically they won't be uh, as successful where languages which are all present tense have a tendency to do things in the moment and get things done um but he was talking when he started the the talk he was um speaking about how if you say uncle in chinese in chinese you would know if the the uncle was related to your mother to your father was related through marriage and all these other details like in, in english it's just auntie and uncle but in chinese and also in turkish so in many other languages you have all these different words for something that seems like the same thing so i'm wondering if in this coffee machine where it might be a black coffee it's not just a black coffee like in Japan. It would be a black coffee with some other kind of beans or whatever. So they need to actually list out what you're actually getting with all these different um, variations. Almost like, you know, in German, it's like compound languages. So you have really long words. Um, but yeah, and no, I mean, okay, you found an article, The Overwhelming World of Japanese Web Design. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, who? I mean, this is like where you really need someone who's an expert in that field. I think... We have a lot of standards in the world of web design, which are based on a very Western cultural approach. I remember being in Turkey and speaking with um, a web design news agency and they had lots of carousels. And at that point, the world of web uh, carousels was like, this is terrible UX. And when I explained to, to the 
the new site, like, you know, this is really, really bad UX. They said to me, I oh, know we removed them, but then our users complained because this is how they passed the information really quickly. I think I've given this example before. Um, and that kind of took me back thinking, hang on, are we superimposing Western feels to like the standards of design? And what does that do to, what does that mean for design languages or design systems that right. we're saying this is like the, the um, de facto thing that everyone should be applying, but should they? And so should design systems be customized completely depending on on the, the culture that they're in? And Or should um, these cultures really adopt better user experiences? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, does that make our design systems imperialistic in nature? Do you know what I mean, it brings up all these other things. Um, and again, it's like the Chinese example where they really like lots of UI and lots of buttons because it feels like they're getting their money's worth as opposed to do they actually achieve, accomplish what they want? Um, but yeah, you've highlighted a quote there. While this was Yeah, yeah. No, I think everything you're saying is spot on. So I found this interesting article in the background. So we talked about like physical things in Japan and like how we have this idea in our head that like everything in Japan is like you know, minimal and calm. And a lot of it is the op is the app opposite. So part of the, I think the real thing in this episode is we're just like investigating like why, like why do we perceive it one way and then it functions differently, but there's a great article on medium from uh, Maxwell forest. And there's a quote in here that says, well, there's a store where basically there's signs, um, advertisements within the store everywhere. So there's just like a ton of text numbers. Um, it looks like it's like, you know, there's a lot going on. So there's a quote in here and the article kind of gets into explaining the, the logic. Um, so it says, well, this would likely repel customers in Western countries. In Japan, the goal is to create a bustling atmosphere that makes it seem like the store is popular and busy, encouraging customers to come in and buy. This is what the websites are aiming for, which is super interesting that they're using websites as almost like a digital version of a Japanese storefront. Yeah. So that's why there's actually so much going on. Um, so there's a, there's a, some there's some cool um, <laughs> examples in here. But I do find it, I do find it incredibly interesting um, that the web design mirrors the physical world um, as well. Yeah, I mean, in some, I mean, in some ways, we're trying to do that in the West. Whereas when we first launched e-commerce sites here, it was all about let's get. It, it was very engineering driven. Like you know, we need user data, we need their email address and their. Uh, if all up front before a person's actually purchased anything, which is not what shopping experiences are in the physical world, you might be asked to sign up for a store card at the end. But and that's all based on how much of a hassle it is while you're trying to pay for your things. Um and and, and the only way that you can entice you is like, all right, if you sign up for this store card, we'll give you ten percent off right now. And then you're entitled enticed to, okay, if I wait and fill out this form, my shopping's gonna be ten percent cheaper. But like, yeah, no, um, so maybe in in that respect, they're much more advanced because they're trying to meet the users where they already are by replicating that. Yeah. So yeah, no, this so, is interesting. Yeah, I think the the last quote in here, and I agree with it. It's like they're trying to meet users where they're where they're at, so they're comfortable with the experience that they're creating. There's another quote in here that says like, "Why are websites like this? Why are they chaotic? Why is there ads everywhere? Or the illusion that there's ads and <laughs> coupons and deals everywhere?" says that majority of these sites have been around for decades and people are used to their current design. 
They tend to have older users who are more sensitive to change and use desktop computers instead of smartphones or tablets, which is interesting that they're doubling down on like the current user base. Yeah. Where obviously most companies are like, how do we attract the youngest, the, the, the Gen Z and the millennials to be um, part of our, our, our flywheel as, as like lifelong um, customers. So I think that's also interesting is that they're just kind of like, this is our core demographic. We're going to build what they like and that'll make them happy and that'll help us. But obviously there's a big shift that, you know, we don't need to get into like why designing for smartphones is probably uh, the right move. But um, I think this is like the main takeaway that it gets into. There's one more quote that I'll read is that it makes it difficult for big companies to make changes and adopt more modern ones with user-friendly designs. I think a lot of this is just like classic friction to change. We have it's working. Why would we change it? Why would we do a redesign? Um, and then they, they basically went in to give a, one more example where it says Japan's most popular messaging app line made small changes to simple, simplify their home tab recently. Um, and it resulted in one star reviews and requesting the design to change back. <laughs> but that's, this very, is like that's classic. Funny. This reminds me of like, Anything that Twitter does, yeah. everyone on Twitter, if it could be the smallest thing, it's like, roll it back. It's terrible. And it's just like designers are in a tough spot because whenever there's something new, people immediately, there's there's a reaction because people don't like change. So you're it's already an uphill battle for any redesign or anytime you're trying to really push the, the like the, you know, push creativity and push design forward. Um, you're gonna be met with some <laughs> some uh, haters, for lack of the better, lack of a better word. Yeah, no, well, you're right. I mean, people do are adverse to change because it. I mean, with Twitter's redesign recently, where they changed the typeface, because users are accustomed. As like typefaces are very hard things to change, get it right because once users are accustomed to like a certain specific look and feel, changing the typeface is a bit like having your um, blanket or bed sheets changed to like a different type of material that you're not used to. So it takes some adjusting because your eyes are like, wait a second, the shapes of the letters are a bit off. Um, and you know, the same thing happened with YouTube when they switched over to Roboto, uh, like, which was like Google's typeface or like the one at the time when material design first came about. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, the other question, I suppose the, the, a lot of users say, if it's not broken, don't um, fix it. But Sometimes you have to push like to push things forward because there'll be other things um, that the existing typeface is not helping with. And also we're in a time right now in the West where everyone wants is the pendulum is swimming, swinging back to uniqueness and everyone wants their own typefaces. They want their own animation layout. And so designers are kind of bored of this WordPress-esque styled um, design where we're currently at still. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting as the, the, the Asian style of design I find interesting because they have such a foundationally different form of um, uh, design when it comes especially to typography and stuff like that. So that will make huge differences. Yeah, no, I think that I think that every this trend of wanting to have everything to be customized and personalized is not going to change. Um, while we were talking about this, I, I kind of wanted to see if anybody's done additional research on like why users hate redesigns. Um, there's another, like I love Medium, so you'll see me reference Medium articles a lot, but there's a great post called, this is why users hate redesigns. 
And there's a quote from the famous Jacob Nielsen where he says, people don't like spending their time learning and they like to spend their time doing, Yeah, which really resonates with me, right? Like uh, Nielsen is like a, an expert in usability. Um, and basically he puts the complaints into one of two categories. If the complaints focus on a lot of diff different aspects of the product, you're off the hook. It's likely your users only need time to adapt to it, but if the complaints are about one thing only, you might have to reconsider that feature, which is interesting, right? Where it's like people, um, like, I'm, but I mean, sometimes I also wonder like if there's like feature requests that people should take seriously, like how, how long have we wanted a tw an edit button on Twitter? Like that's never, that supposedly is coming, but you're gonna have to pay for it. Yeah, and I think with, you also, I mean, you have to be very careful that you're not just listening to a loud minority. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. Because, I mean, because how many times have you gone, oh, you know what? I hate this feature so much. I'm going to write a review about it. You think to yourself, hmm, these people don't have much time on their hands. The only time like I've written a review is if, you know, if I've bought something and it was really good. I'm like, you know what? This was, this is really good. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm totally Office, with you. Off is really bad. Um, I suppose, or like, I, I mean, you see reviews, especially on video games, which people pay money for, that gets people really irate. Um, and so they'll write like these reviews, but I don't know. I mean, if you think about Steve, I mean, again, in what I've noticed in the last couple of years, I've started referring a lot to Steve Jobs, who I used to be a bit cynical about, but then you hear some of the stuff he used to say, like in 97. And it's still so relevant to some of the stuff which I'm designing today when he's talking about like user behavior and you think, well, wow, this guy really knew, like away from all of the cynicism, this guy really knew what he was talking about. Like, and he, or he was surrounded yeah. by a lot of experts who definitely knew what they were talking about. Um, and if you think about the changes that they went through, like the iMac removed SCSI ports and like went to pure USB and they, they um, started introducing modems and like people, there was so much uproar. It's like, why are you removing these peripherals? This is really bad. It's like, well, no, for SCSI ports, you have to, when you connect it, you have to restart the machine, make sure everything's um, plugged, like uh, you have all the plugins or drivers or whatever. But for USB, you just plug and play. And that is such much, that's such much more of a, um, I can't even speak English. That's much more of a huge usability UX experience. Like, why would you want to go back? Like, you know, yeah. and it, you imagine like every time you plug in a device, you have to restart your machine. How, how like distract, destructive is that from an experience point of view? Um, so sometimes you have to think, well, the users just need to move forward, but then other times there's things that you do and, um, it, it really isn't conducive to the experience. So like when Twitter did fleets, clearly, it, you know, um, there's that trend of the temporary 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 things which are people sharing on social media which is basically snapchat right um yeah but the core audience of twitter is very very different and so who uh, instead of appealing to the existing audience are you trying to get new people in do you alienate your existing users um that's why user testing um is so important uh you know because you have to see things in the hands of people and see how they react and behave and maybe what they want isn't what they actually need. And they're just saying it because, you know, um, it's like someone always wants an eraser on their desk, but they never use a pencil. So what's the point of having that eraser? 
because one day they may <laughs> use a pencil. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah. clearly you don't use this. So having that there is just clutter. So let's remove it. No, no, but I really, this is really important to me. Okay, when was the last time you used a pencil? Ah, uh, where, 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 where? Okay, exactly, you don't need it. So it's like, there's, so there's elements of that as well. Um, but then, you know, as they say, the customer is always right. Yeah, no, it's a tough, it's a really tough problem to solve for product managers, designers. Um, but that this is like a reoccurring theme um, is that the importance of user research, having a good UXR to kind of pressure test this. So you're investing in the right features and components and ideas um, is always um, recommended. I mean, I mean, just the razor example, I would say to everyone right now, whoever's listening around the world, um, look on your desk and look at the items on your desk and ask yourself, when was the last time you used every single one of those items? And then ask yourself, why are they there? And imagine, <laughs> imagine if that's this, that's your desk is a user interface. Uh, well, you don't need to call me out. I'm in the middle of like a little bit of a redesign. I got a lot of junk <laughs> on my desk right now. Same but... here. <laughs> a lot of junk, a lot of dust. I'm thinking, oh man, there's that thing which I'm supposed to use yeah. for my eyes. I haven't touched that in about six months. So why is it there? And like when you're designing products, you're, it's about focusing on the specific user experience. So, um, but then some things are comfort things. Some things are branded things, you know, and where do you draw yep. the line? And this is the balance that um, we're always looking forward to. Like what we're working towards um but yeah yeah no that's brilliant um i think that's spot on all right anything else before we before we end oh there was one thing i saw on twitter that was really hilarious uh someone created a javascript library uh which is called thanos.js and the idea is you run it in your on your website uh yeah. package and it just randomly deletes half of the files <laughs> <laughs> It just it's perfectly balanced as like basically it basically ruins your website <laughs> but someone That's actually hilarious. created and i can imagine people making a copy of their website and then running it and just going lol nothing is working and i think what what was that about <laughs> yeah some people just like the the chaos yeah yeah maybe maybe they're right i don't know yeah well listen thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of design huddle um, if you're interested in joining this podcast, uh, please send us a note either on Instagram or Twitter. We add um, our social handles in every show notes. So if you're looking to get in contact with us, reach out. We're trying to queue up a ton of interviews uh, for this fall. So we'd love to hear from you and uh, get you on the podcast. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, guys. We'll catch you on the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.